intrinsically, the world is open to multiple interpretations and ways of, of being. So perspectives never come alone because positions are not, we're not fixated in one single position. Distributed creativity is this idea that creative responsibility is shared, that I am impacted by the creativity and the, the, the kind of actions and thoughts and directions and everything of others in my, my environment, non-human actors. The logic of assessment needs to be in the service of human action and, and human society, not the other way around. We shouldn't use assessment to know where you are in society. We should use how we live to inform how we assess. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepida News. Happy New Year and Happy New Season. Previously, we aligned our seasons with the academic calendar, but because we're trying to move beyond school, we are now aligning it to the standard Gregorian calendar. So welcome to season five. And today's guest, the season's first guest, is Vlad Glovenu. Vlad is a full professor of psychology in the School of Psychology at Dublin City University and also a professor at the Center for the Science of Learning and Technology at the University of Bergen. He is the founder and president of the Possibility Studies Network, and his work focuses on creativity, imagination, culture, collaboration, wonder, possibility, and societal change. And he is the author and editor of numerous books. Now, this is a conversation that I was very, very excited to have. I had seen Vlad on a webinar that was organized by Penny Hay, and he talks about conceptualizing the world in terms of possibilities, taking us away from this idea of potential, which is mechanistic and linear, and really thinking about the different perspectives, the pluriverse of perspectives that are involved in the emergence of possibilities. Now, this changes quite a bit in terms of the way we think about school, we think about assessment, but also in terms of the way we think about life and the way we think about our relationships with one another. The conversation here is sometimes a bit philosophical, sometimes a bit esoteric, but I think that if we zoom out and make the connections with what goes on in schools and in organizations and in life, we can really pick up quite a few messages that change us and make us think about the different ways in which we consider and approach the world and invite us to look at it in terms of possibilities, not deterministic potential. As always, our website is www.coconut-thinking.design and Intrepid Ed News is on www.intrepidednews.com. And right now I'll leave space for my conversation with Vlad. Well, hi Vlad and uh, happy new year. I'm uh, really excited to have you on your show. I heard you speak at an event organized by uh, Penny Hay, and I'm really looking forward to exploring this idea that is really your work, looking at possibilities and, and comparing that with potential and maybe some of the openings that that allows. But before we get into that, I want to ask you the question that we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Right, right. So who am I? That's that's a big question, isn't it? So I'm, um, I'm an academic. I am a professor of psychology at Dublin City University in Ireland. Uh, recently moved to Ireland. I am a Romanian. I, uh, I've been living in a few countries until now. So I studied in Romania and then I finished my studies in London. And then I, I taught in, and lived in Denmark. And then I went to Switzerland and I lived briefly in France and now in Ireland. So I'm, I guess I'm a traveler, uh, one can say. I'm also a family man with children and and uh, and and a wife and yeah, spending a lot of time with very young children. 
And um, I am a closeted writer. I, I have this passion for narratives and fiction and fantasy. And um, I am someone who enjoys uh, sushi a lot and trying to control a bit that habit. So I guess that's who I am in a, in a coconut shell. <laughs> How do you define learning? And we ask this question to everyone. It's so interested in getting different perspectives. You're a professor. Uh, you've got a, a certain a, a, a piece of work. How do you define learning? Right. Well, actually, it's it's good you asked me the second question because I, I remember that you had a second part, which is what I wanted to say, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna tie it in with how I define learning. Um, so I, I'm a social psychologist by by training. So uh, that means that I'm I'm very much interested in in people, in minds, if you want minds within bodies, within societies and contexts. And because I'm a social psychologist, I'm also a firm believer in the power of the environment or what we call the context. You know, um, in psychology, often people make these analytical cuts in which you know the focus is the person, the individual, the individual mind, um, and and we kind of think of context as a background but in my thinking and that's going to be consequential for how i define learning the the context is a full part of what we're talking about the context is the phenomenon in many ways right um, as well so i'm a creativity researcher and i'm a possibilities scholar more recently and if i think about learning you know if you had asked me this question um five years ago <laughs> or 10 I mean, let's say 10 um i would have probably gone a very traditional uh, route of talking about the acquisition you know of, of knowledge through experience i think a lot of people would, would talk about that but most recently what i'm interested in and i i, I really you know i i'm a firm believer that that's what learning at the heart of it is about is about becoming aware of new possibilities for thinking, for acting, for being. When we learn, we don't only get knowledge, but in a pragmatist way, and by the way, I'm very influenced by, by pragmatism in, in everything I'm going to tell you, learning is about doing and it's about living. And what we do uh, as, as we live and, and make things and think is actually discover possibilities and and enact some and not enact some and imagine and give up and, and continue so i think i think there's a deep connection between learning and opening up a horizon for thinking and acting and and being now there's a lot of words that you used here that i'm going to try to, right. to grab and, and and the first one is the cuts when you talk about analytical mm -hmm. cuts with context, so there is this sense in traditional ways of thinking, especially mechanistic ways, that we have individuals, we have context, individuals move within context. Um, what what do you mean here by cuts? Because that's a word that's really, um, that's quite heavy. Mm. Well, it, it is an interesting word, isn't it? Because when you do an analysis, and by the way, I'm, I'm a fan of analysis, but of course, within the picture, you have analytical and, and synthesis, you know, so it's, it's all kind of dialectical there. But when you do an analysis, you have to choose a unit of analysis. And implicitly, I mean, that's the, that's the nature of this thought process, if you want, you have to separate certain things from each other. That's why a, a work of analysis, a work of research that is often based on analysis, but not only, right? Um, you know, it, my, my, my supervisor used to say that it does some kind of violence to the data and to the world that the data wants to represent. Because when you analyze, again, you have to separate to distinguish and to clarify. In a way, we go back to, I mean, Descartes, right? When, when he thought about what is the nature of thought, it's about distinct and clear ideas. And how do you get there? You, you have to separate and, and cut out things. So 
one one example that comes to mind, just thinking about how we separate context and we lose so much, is uh, I was very much inspired by Barbara Rogoff and and her sociocultural thinking you know around um, education apprenticeships and so on and in one of her books I think the one on human development she has this series of images that are just wonderful so she presents a student um, just a student at kind of an outline and then asks the reader to think okay what would you say about this student what would you ask what you know and you start thinking okay well this is a student who might behave like this like that and then gradually she adds context, what the student has in, in his or her hands, who is beside the student, then the teachers appear, the classroom appears, and, and you see at every step, you made not wrong assumptions, but different assumptions than what it was. If you miss the context, you don't understand the student, you don't understand what's happening, you know? So I think I think that is just a beautiful illustration, a beautiful argument for holistic thought. And again, analysis and, and synthesis, they, they you know, Hegelian kind of dialectic, they, 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 they have to go together. The question is, how do we make those cuts that make sense for the people we talk to and for the world and, and have this positive impact instead of just cutting for the sense of reducing, you know, what, what, what is the aim of our knowledge? Um, and I'm, I'm going to shut up in a moment, but I'm also inspired a lot by Habermas, right? And, and he talked about prediction and control as a function of knowledge and then empowerment. So I'm, I'm very much into this more action research empowerment type of, and, and in that framework, you have to be very careful with the analytical cuts you make. And this idea of analytical cuts actually challenges many of our worldviews, our, our, the frameworks, the lenses through which we look at the world, because when we, we don't appreciate the cuts that we have, we, we tend to essentialize things, that is, give them, give them a permanent um, nature, so to speak. But the cuts actually look different. For instance, the student you speak of is a student, but they're also a human. They're also part of, uh, of, of the world. All, there's, there's different ways there's, uh, that we can look at that. And, and specifically, I'm, I'm interested in this idea of objectivity and subjectivity and how cuts really challenge those notions of objectivity and subjectivity. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's fascinating. You know, you're taking me back to um, my PhD and post-PhD days. I uh, Maybe we'll come back in our discussion, but um, I did my PhD on, a, I call it a romantic topic. So I'm a creativity researcher as a social psychologist, which is kind of unique. You know, a lot of people who study creativity either do it from education or individual differences. But anyway, I started from that background. And I looked at um, Easter egg decoration practices um, in, in northern Romanian villages, you know, the border with Ukraine. And uh, and anyway, that was a big question for me from that time. You know, where do you where does the creative process begin and end? And and I was fascinated by dichotomies, and I'm still intrigued by dichotomies. You know, in in Western thought, at least in Western logic, um, Aristotelian type of you know, it's it's P and non P. So you you have this dualistic logic. Something is true or false. You know, and and we operate a lot with that. And I think. Exactly as you said, we should not get trapped. A lot of these cuts, what they do is they push us into dichotomies that become reified, become essentialized. And also a hierarchy becomes implicit. For instance, I, I studied with a lot of people who looked at common sense common sense knowledge versus scientific knowledge. These are two categories. I mean, we might argue, of course, how intertwined they are. But when we say common sense and science, implicitly, a lot of people say, well, science is, is, is you know, on top. And of course, the question is, what are we pragmatically trying to do with these cuts? Who are we, what kind of um, human interest 
are we advancing in the world? And, and we would discover, as you said, that being flexible with this and, and looking at how you can cut again and recut and put things in context will, will always help us more than just making these an, an analytical cuts and a hierarchy and, and, and just living at that. And the fascinating part is if we take also Karen Barad and, and her agential realism, and I don't want to go too far into, into that, that rabbit hole because uh, uh, not everybody has mm -hmm. read Karen Barad, but, but she <laughs> talks about the fact that the cuts we make really aligns with our ethics. And it's not what we include, it's what we exclude and how we kind of navigate that exclusion. How do we work with that? How do we work mm. with the things that we exclude? The student you talked about, we can't include everything. How do we work ethically with those exclusions? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, we're, we're going at the heart of it because I think, you know, what we said about possibility is a lot about that. You know, we th there are infinite possibilities in, in, in a sense. But of course, um, we have finite <laughs> possibilities to act and even to think, you know, within a, a specific context. So choices will always be made. And, and you're right that, you know, the, the shadow of a, of a possibility taken is the possibility that was not taken. And the shadow of a cut that was made is what what, it, what is left behind. I think here I, I would go back, you know, and I, I'm, I'm a firm believer also in this idea of ethics of possibility you know we we need to infuse our thinking and learning and engagement with the possible with this notion of of who you know whose interest am i serving and what am i doing in the world by by promoting what i'm i'm promoting so i being a pragmatist i'm not against um, analysis. I'm not against even dichotomies. I think it, they can be very useful, but I'm against rigidity and I'm against these assumptions, exactly as you said, that there is a intrinsic reality that makes it that forever and ever things are like this. A and B are like this, forever and ever A is superior to B. No, the world of possibilities, the world of perspectives. And 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 you know, the more we we open our minds to these perspectives, I, I think the better, the more informed and ethical we can be when acting. At the same time, and I do want to say this because say, I, I find it fascinating, you know, I, I also draw inspiration from um, dialogism. So Bakhtin and, and other, other scholars. So Bakhtin had this beautiful idea that tension between perspectives is what keeps dialogue going and then what, you know, keeps us going in, in many ways. And, um, and then he opposed this with monologism, which is when, when again, you're thinking of only in one specific way. The moment of action, I have the, another another um, kind of um, mentor of mine, Jan Walsiner. Uh, the moment of action, he would say, is necessarily monological because when you act, you have to kind of collapse possibilities into the thing you kind of chose in a way, right? But of course, the thing you chose is not only what you intended it to be, it will be multiple things again. So I think it's a very interesting dynamic. It's almost, I think, almost like an accordion of sorts or, you know, something that, 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 that expands and contracts. When we act, we kind of, you know, collapse some possibilities, but by acting, we immediately have a new horizon of what is possible. So I think with cuts, we operate in the same way. We, we, we sometimes have to reduce things, you know, to put them into a certain place. But by doing that, we immediately open the horizon for what could be. And I think being aware of that, that is the thing that we should be mindful of and, and help people learn and experience. And of course, you use the word collapse, which makes impossibilities, which makes me think of the quantum mm -hmm. theory with collapsing the wave right. function. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm not going to quantum just because I'm I'm very uh, kind of <laughs> naive about that. But I know I know a lot of people make exactly they they talk about quantum and fractals and and I, I think there are, there are so many beautiful analogies in that area. Me, I'm more comfortable 
comfortable with the dialogue metaphor and things like that, but I'm very happy to discuss, yeah, um, all sorts of directions. But but this is the thing about the possibilities, and and I'm going to oppose that to the word, and maybe it's a false opposition, but but contrasted with the world potential. Now, potential is a very mechanistic word, a word of like um, uh, that that comes from power, and of course, this idea we think of potential, we think of well, just that power. How is that different from possibilities? Yeah, yeah, I that, that, that's a topic of of reflection for me because I, I study creativity and uh, in creativity people are obsessed with creative potential, and you know they're obsessed with it for a good reason in some ways. You know, it 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 moves people away from the genius metaphor of only few select individuals get to to become great, and and in many ways by saying potential we democratize creativity. We say that everyone could be creative, given the right context, given the right opportunity, right? So there is something that I, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you know, pragmatically, there is something useful to thinking of potential. But in later years, when I started to think more about the possible, for me, the essence of the possible is multiplicity, you know, diversity, difference. And it, it, it comes to me and to my mind that potential very often, if you go back exactly as I said to etymology and, and we look at the way in the natural world, you think that a seed has the potential to grow into a plant and, and you know, all these things. There is a certain kind of linearity. There is a telos. There is a, an end, a, a, an aim to that potential, right? And of course, I mean, I have young kids, as I said, so I see the adult in them somehow, right? So I look at their potential to grow. I mean, I see them grow. It we change their clothes, you know, every few months. So we uh, know that their their size of clothes, I should say. Um, so, so I see that potential unfold. But the possibilities, who will they grow into as an adult? And that's multiple. They don't have just the potential to become, you know, whatever a guitarist and a, you know, but but they have the the possibilities about open-endedness in terms of where things are going. So that, that's what I personally prefer, um, creative possibilities and just thinking of the possible in general. And this goes back to the perspectives that you mentioned, the different perspectives rather than linearity. Could, could you make that the connection between the two? Yeah, no, for, for sure. I mean, so what is a perspective? We have to go, we have to go back one, one step. So I'm, um, as a, again, as a social psychologist working on creativity, I'm interested to acquire a new vocabulary for, for creativity, to acquire what I call relational concepts, because very often in, in creativity work and in psychology, and I think more, more broadly, you know, going back to analytical cuts, the words we have point us either inside or outside the person. So we have like institutions are outside of you, mental states are inside of you, emotions, what you feel, and so on and so forth. So there is this Cartesian dichotomy, right? So what I'm what I love doing is finding words that look both ways. They look to person and environment at the same time. I'm gonna give you first example is affordance, and then I'm gonna to move to perspective. And affordance, I mean, Gibson talked about it, and, and designers are all over this, this notion. And affordance is what could be done with something and what could be done depends not only on the object and its properties those properties are stable but affordances are not affordances are the meeting point between who is the user and even you know gibson would say affordance is what you perceive in ambient light so if you if you make a room of complete darkness you lose the affordances the objects are there the properties are there but because of the context you don't see it you can't use it you know you can bump into it if you want so affordance has this wonderful think that it's not the object, it's not the person, it's not the environment, it's the meeting of the three. And that's why, you know, when you get injured, your affordances change. Or 
speaking of creativity, when uh, you know you you have this mono orientation, they're going to come back to with perspectives. You have this unique singular perspective the affordance will be only one you're going to miss all the others like if you if you have a hammer everything is a nail they say right while the nail can be many things and, and hammers can do many things so this is where perspectives come in because they actually unite with affordances very nicely so a perspective is a bridge between the person or i should say rather a position because the position is quite different from the person. We occupy multiple positions at the same time. So physically we're positioned, socially we have multiple roles. Look at us now, right? We're in a dialogue. We have this speaker-listener position that we exchange. So a position and then something in the world, the aboutness of the perspective. So now, for instance, we're co-developing perspectives on learning and possibility. The aboutness is, is what we're talking about, which changes and shifts. And then we move positions, right? I mean, you and I were both kind of, you know, we were part kind of researchers, academics, uh, practitioners, and people that draw on different backgrounds to understand what we're talking about. So the perspective is the bridge. Here is where I, I draw a lot on pragmatism on George Herbert Mead, um, who has this beautiful perspectival philosophy of the world. And the, the essence of it is that the world is perspectival. Even if we make our best efforts to collapse, again, to use that word, collapse perspectives into a singular one, um, intrinsically, the world is open to multiple interpretations and ways of, of being. So perspectives never come alone because positions are not, we're not fixated in one single position. We can reposition, we can take new perspectives, we can exchange positions. So I think what is interesting to me and, and in my work is to look at all of these forces that push us to think in singular ways and to adopt singular perspectives. In education, it might be the curriculum that is very rigidly applied or an assessment that says, this is the answer. Do not think of other perspectives. You know, this is the equation that has only one answer. This is what it is. Um, if we think in, in wider terms, and I, I might get in, in hot water here, but you know, if you think about religious uh, truths and the way dogma is presented, it's also trying to make something monological is to say, you know, this is this is how things are. Science, in some ways, although science is an exercise that that includes doubt and and you know, kind of doubting your own premise, it's also a way of saying this is what it is, and you can't go beyond that. I think it's interesting for us to engage with the beyond. And I'm saying this fully aware that we live in a world of post-truth and we have to look at the darker side of multiple perspectives as well, because not all perspectives, all perspectives are not equal, if you know what I mean. It's very nice and very useful to be open to multiple perspectives, but it doesn't mean you have to agree with every perspective. So coming back to your question of multiplicity and, and um, singularity, I think very often we're, we're in these positions where a singular perspective, a singular way of relating to the world, a single, a single way of being is obvious to us. We do it out of habit, out of comfort, out of laziness, out of oppression, out of you know things that, that, that constrain us. But at the end of the day, it is not like that. And you know, in moments of playfulness, of relaxation, of, of engaging with religious ideas and science, I'm not belittling any of that, we open the universe of possibility. And I would say that it is those experiences that, you know, make life worth living and make learning enjoyable in the end. And you, you mentioned post-truth, but something that happened before the quote-unquote, and I'm putting air quotes here, post-truth era, of course, was postmodernism. And some people might brush over this and say, oh, this is postmodernist, oh, there's no values. But you're talking about something that's different here. Can you, can you, can you make the contrast with postmodernism? And maybe even go into what postmodernism might be. Absolutely. Oh, thanks for 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's wonderful. You know, I started, I mean, I I, I can't say I started as a postmodernist. You know, I I think I, I definitely have uh, that line of thought within me. I'm, I'm certainly, you know, I'm certainly um, not a positivist uh, in, in some ways, although I, I, I do empirical research and, and things like that. But um, I'm a pragmatist. So pragmatism is the third way in many philosophical ways, right? Pragmatism is, is actually Mead, going back to him, he what we take from him is this perspectival realism. And that's a wonderful idea because you can't throw away from realism and positivism the fact that reality does exist, quote unquote. There is something the beyond us that, that you know, you, you can believe as much as you want that you're going to fly. If you jump off a window, you're not, you know, gonna, you're going to crash, most likely. So, so there is a reality out there. But at the same time, we inhabit a world of perspectives. But you cannot fall prey to the solipsism, the kind of, the kind of you know, inside the mind that Descartes, again, you know, gave us, which is everything is inside my mind. I'm constructing everything with my mind. We're constructing it in action. And I think that is the term. That is the notion and we we started you know pre-podcast thinking about thinking and action um for me that's the glue that we're often missing at least in psychology the action is not just the thought and mental states and it's not just the world and the objects and it is in the doing and i think when you when you put things in the doing you 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 hook together person and environment and you add time because time and possibility i mean that's the whole thing possibilities emerge and fold get closed it's, it's a temporal trajectory so for me these action materiality time are the keys to unlock these dichotomies because when you when you operate in this developmental and systemic way you notice that you cannot be reified in this is reality this is mental states they all co-construct each other and what we do when we separate them we do this mental trick in which we stop time we think in universal ways we abstract all the context and then we're left with the simplest form and say oh i found it you know but what is the meaning of that? In the end, it is the 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 mashing, the the interwoven nature that we're we're actually you know in the end kind of trying to study. So yeah, just to answer your 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 question, I am a pragmatist, so that means that I, I build a lot of construct on constructivism. But I do have just as I mentioned before, I I believe not all perspectives are equal in a pragmatic ethical sense. And you remember that pragmatism has this famous um, notion of the truth being in the consequence of action and. You know, when I was in high school and I was first introduced to pragmatism as a as a high school student, I hated it. I will. This is the first time I'm saying it. This world premiere. I hated this notion. I I couldn't wrap my mind around it. I was like, how is it possible? There's the consequence because then the most powerful will be always right because they have all. The, but no, no, no. The consequence is much more pervasive than that. The consequence affects everyone. And you know, even us and and some people who have power. And I think Paulo Freire beautifully talked about this. You get entrapped by your own dichotomies and even if you think they're useful to you pragmatically give you money or status they enslave you intellectually and humanly so there is a price to pay so I, I like this idea of action and consequence as a way of breaking or uniting if you want more uh, constructivist and realist um, assumptions I, I love this idea of enslaving and I'm going to keep that on the side for just a second um, because because this is uh, because of the liberation that this affords but one of the things that that really makes it clear to me because you know we talk about all these things it's a little bit hard to grasp is is it twofold what one about the perspectives is that if you're 
a human, if you're an animal, if you're an insect, you you literally see the world different. Now, I, I'm not going to go into this whole uh, phenomenology of of you know we interpret the world through our senses. I don't I don't want to simplify well simplify. I don't want to go in that route. But nevertheless, it it, it does change our sense of reality if we see it in, in in many colors or birds are supposed to be able to see with four primary colors. And, and the other side that 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 I want to look at also is time because there's no universal time. The capital T that we learn in algebra doesn't exist. It's all relative. Our time is relative. So so in those things, that, that kind of maybe gives us something to hook onto when we talk about this multi-perspectival um, um, approaches. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's a fantastic point. You know, I enjoy going online and, and sometimes finding they have these websites where they show you how a dog or a fly would see the same object, you know, and you can kind of um, scroll or, or go go with the bar and, and kind of see the, the multiplicity. Absolutely. I mean, we live in pluriperspectival world, worlds to begin with because of the range of, of you know, um, stimulation that we can we can be sensitive to. So already, you know, physics, going back to physics, I mean, physics, uh, relativity theory, I mean, we know all of that, right? In, in a way, it's, it's quite obvious. But I think it has such a power in the social sciences and in society and in, in education if we translate all of those into ways of learning and being that are just a little bit different and tap into what makes us human. I don't want to be species here. I, I definitely don't want the post-humanists to, to go after me, but <laughs> there is something about the human condition, you know, and it's not ex exclusive to humans, but the human condition that that um, I think I think living worlds of possibility and possible selves is is the the human way of living in many ways. Okay, so you mentioned the word human condition. So I'm going to grab this and talk about liberation and go maybe a little bit into <laughs> the existentialists and see what your thoughts are. We could talk about action. Go, to, about, go there. <laughs> talk about the relationships and and and, and this way of action and, and the existentialists talking about um, our responsibility, the fact that we are condemned to be free. H how does this flip that or how does it support that or, or what is the, the the relationship here because it, it seems to me that this this um this humanist existentialist idea of being condemned to be free still individualizes us and takes us out of the context but you're talking about this being liberation mm. Mm. I, I i think i think I'm, I'm i'm getting where where you're getting at and I, I want to address that but just to say before um and i do remind me about this idea of liberation and and where does this freedom come from um, one thing is that I, I draw a lot on, on kind of existentialist phenomenological, you know, Heideggerian and, and Sartre and, and the rest, because I mean, for Heidegger, and that, that's what the beauty, and I, I'm not going to pretend I understand Heidegger fully or any of these uh, philosophers I mentioned, but <laughs> to my mind, the project of the being and the being in time, going back to time, right? is the fact that it's an open project. And I, I really love his idea of anxiety that you see recurrent in the word, work of existentialists. I mean, you know, I, I mean, from Kierkegaard as well and, and others. Um, anxiety is fundamental for who we are because anxiety is the openness to the future. The moment you have no anxiety, things are done and finished. And, and it is in a way death that is the final kind of um, stop in some ways, at least from the person's perspective, not from the perspective of others or society of this fundamental openness, right? So I, I draw a lot on that, but I think, as you said, there is something I, I don't want to um, fall into the, the almost like individualistic and almost neoliberal type of ideology of you can do it. It's within you. The human condition as a reified thing. You know, I, I, I put big inverted commas. I, I, I shouldn't really speak about the human condition. Maybe I should speak about being and, you know, the, the way of being that that 
humans have, but also being in general, I find that it's open to the possible. So again, I'm not drawing lines here. I'm not opposing humans to non-humans. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm talking about humans because I, I'm a human. So again, pragmatically, you know, we, we are grounded in a position. So it's good to speak from that position as well. But I think there is a lot of work to, to be done not to get this project of possibility hijacked into these discourses of all is possible, it's all within you, it's all perspectival, so you can do it. Um, I have this colleague, uh, Michael Hatchett Hansen, who is um, is in Columbia University, he teaches creativity, and he's an educator. And, and he, uh, together with another colleague, Ron Baghetto, we, we had these conversations and about the possible pedagogies of the possible, a book is gonna come up uh, hopefully soon. And and Michael said, you know, this is this is one of the most dangerous ideas and, and it kind of put me kind of, you know, maybe take a step back and I think Ron as well, because he saw how easily these ideas could be taken and, and shaped into you can do it type of mentality, which is not, intrinsically bad but if you don't have the context going back to you know systemic inequalities the nature of the world around us you cannot just let people say you're a being of the possible so enact that possibility because possibilities are intrinsically interwoven with the possibility of the other so i think when i studied creativity you know i i, I came up with these notions of distributed creativity i mean i other people talked about that as well in all honesty but distributed creativity is this idea that creative responsibility is shared, that I am impacted by the creativity and the, the, the kind of actions and thoughts and directions and everything of others in my, my environment, non-human actors, but I'm also bearing responsibility for that environment. So I think that that is, again, going back to ethics, this shared, distributed, relational nature of the possible needs to come back um, yeah, to our discussion. So this is opening up the the, the really the the elephant in the room, or, Let's or do it. at least exposing the <laughs> elephant in the room, because right. because when we talk about schools, we're individualizing students at their desks with a pencil, a paper, and we are assessing what they're supposed to know and their quote unquote learning, which is seen as meritocratic in in the positive sense of the word rather than the more um, nefarious sense of the word without taking into um, uh, consideration the context. Now, we might say, oh, yes, certain places have socioeconomic needs and this changes it and so forth. But it's way more than that, isn't it? It's way more because if we're not individual and if we are all relational and, and intermingled and intermeshed with, with context, this idea of assessing individual students makes no more sense. Right, right. I mean, the, the, here we go back also to to culture and the, the, the way in which worlds are co-constructed with them and, and for us in many ways, right? I mean, as a social psychologist, I started uh, thinking about, oh my God, individualism, collectivism, of course, these are, these are you know, going back to the dichotomies and, and, um, and, uh, and cuts in a way, they are so dangerous, but, but they're also intuitively useful to think about that. So what is the human self? How do you see the self? I, you know, and I'm going to address assessment in a moment. I, um, I don't want to throw the baby with the bathwater. I think there is, you know, there, there's a big stream of, of work in psychology around, especially Bandura and um, self-efficacy. And there's a lot of work that says, and in creativity as well, that self-esteem and more than that, creative identity and, and creative self-efficacy, they do matter. So it's, we, we, we can't say, oh, it's it's never, not it's never within you, but we can't say the belief that that you are, an agent and you have agency is not important. It's very important. It's very important. But understanding that agency in context, I think, you know, um, it, it's kind of protecting you from the, 
the darker side, which for instance, burnout. Why are so many creative people in burnout? Because they're into this ideology that you either have it or not, that you have it or you've lost it, that you know it's it's your thing. If you if you can't create, it's over, you know, you're you're tapped out. That was your potential. There are so many. Um, wrong and and dangerous, uh, you know, harmful assumptions packed into that. But I do I do want to leave place to this idea that um, that of course there is a, an individual contribution. I, I, you see, language fails us here, but there is an 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 individual vector going to the world that meets all these other vectors and co-creates what we're talking about. If we apply this to schooling, if you apply this to assessment, I'm completely completely you know in in line with what you said that we are we're trapped in this mindset i call it the cubicle culture because every person is put in in, in its little cubicle it's not anymore the genius view whereby you have this mountaintop and everyone is at the base it's it's more flat a, a little bit more flat of course we still idealize whatever gates and elon musk and whatever you know i mean people some some people we, we still have these ideas of, of inborn talent and so on but um more or less in education generally or as a, as an ideal you know we we try a bit more equality but it's an equality that is super individualistic it's it's what each and every cell brings you and and what they have and i think for assessment it's a tough nut to crack because again you don't want to throw any form of assessment out pragmatically to assess means to have a reference point that helps you move forward you know if you think of possibilities by the way and we we mentioned the impossible and constraints um these are landmarks that, that that help you step on and then see what's next. You need to be stepping on something. You know, you you can be in the process. You can be mashed and intermingled and all, but but you also need this kind of you know stepping points. The question is how we use assessment. And and to give you a very very simple example of a creativity test, because that that's what I I know best, right? I'm a, I am an educator. I use assessments with my students. I I I'm not a fan of multiple choice. I will. We'll make it clear, but also I have topics that lend themselves, you know, to more essay forms. So that as an educator, that puts my mind a bit at ease because I, you know, I find there is a different engagement when people tell you a story in a way of their knowledge. But leaving that aside, a creativity test. So how many things can you do with a brick? Um, how many things can you do with a paper clip? You have these divergent thinking items. Some people would take those. And would say, okay, give me your ideas. I'm gonna, I'm gonna count how many they are. I'm gonna start categorizing them. I'm gonna put them into these buckets of one category of uses, second one, and, and see how flexible you are. I'm gonna see how rare they are. I'm gonna compare them with other answers. And I'm gonna come back with some numbers. Okay. Now, in creativity, thankfully, we were not into the IQ culture of of having just one number for your creativity, if you want. Although it's it's a horrific idea, but. You know, some people create profiles and, and you get to see, you know, on divergent language or on convergent, whatever. And you, you have a, a kind of a solidified moment in time where you see where you were in relation to those items. And then you can do some forms of education and come back to similar items and see what happened. So this kind of pre-post test and this kind of action, uh, you know, um, using this type of knowledge to create education to move forward. I don't think it's necessarily bad, but of course, when you present students with numbers, they're going to internalize those and think, well, this is who I am. This is, you know, it's my label. It's my status here. Look at your graph. I mean, you seem to be doing well. That's not who you are. That That is a certain task in a certain moment within a certain context. That is the outcome of your action. So what I like to, to do with these items is to think about them as intervention. I, I don't like to, to just, you know, go to one child. I, I love to have groups of children or students or adults and co-create answers and collaborate because in real life, 
nobody's going to ask you how many things can you do with a brick you know it's going to be a collaborative situation where people work together uh, with stuff that interests them and then they make some things happen and then they evaluate and see is it good is it bad does it work and then they move forward so i think the logic of assessment needs to be in the service of human action and and human society not the other way around we shouldn't use assessment to know where you are in society we should use how we live to inform how we assess that's absolutely beautiful. And I just keep thinking of this idea of field and how creativity is just augmented every time we, we work together and bounce ideas off one another and what can we do and and and, and contribute with that. Anyone use the word produce, uh, but but contribute rather than trying to have a gotcha culture yeah. <laughs> of let me find out what you don't right. know. Listen, thank you so much. I, I, I'm going to leave the last question. Um, actually, I'm going to ask you two questions. Um, the first one is what book are you reading right now or what books? Oh my God! What book am I? Reading? Well, I, I I do yes, I, I read a few books in in parallel. Um, so I'm I'm reading uh, Good Omens. I should have read it a long time ago. I, I I kind of had it around. Um, so Gaiman and Pratchett. Uh, I I always love to have some literature going on because I'm I'm really um, nourished by by this utopian thought. You know, I, I told you at the beginning that I love fantasy because I think it 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 moves us from the proximal possible, the adjacent possible, some people would say, uh, the world of possibility that is within your grasp of planning what's for lunch and that and that and the other into a complete other possible that is so open. It's almost the vastness of it is is all inducing. So I love fantasy for that. And I'm also reading this. Um, I, I'm so bad with author author names, but I'm 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 going to. It's called Another World Is Possible, and uh, from the first chapters, I um, I highly recommend this book. A lot of what we say. So it's by Geoff Morgan. Uh, who's at UCL. And it's a super recent book. It's 2022. And and I, I, I'm reading them. I'm thinking, that's it. I mean, that that's that's what I, you know, I also think. I mean, th there are some differences I'm not going to get into. Uh, but uh, but I love it. So this is a, it's a book about the crisis of imagination and how we actually have the basis to be optimistic. We just need to turn things around. I mean, this uh, this author is a social innovation uh, scholar. So what I'm what I'm reading are things that nourish kind of my my thoughts, and they also make me think. My God, there there are so many resonances and so many beautiful connections that emerge when you have an interest and a passion and a lens. You know, a perspective is a lens, but but it shouldn't be trapped in a single lens. And just to, to finish off with that, because I think it, it is interesting here, the book before, the fantasy book I read was Neverwhere uh, by by Gaiman. So this this uh, fiction novel, and, and it's about doors and opening doors. And anyway, I'm not going to spoil, but there's this, a small interview at the very end of the book. And I loved that book. I really did. And at the end, he's asked, if you could open a door, any door, would you just go through it? And he says, yes, of course I will. Because every door means new possibilities. You know, opening it is new. And, and when I read that, it's, then the book ends. Bam. And I thought, that's it. That is it. That's exactly what I love. So it's, it's beautiful to, to find resonances and then to think of differences. That's always, um, yeah, fruitful. That's amazing. And um and we love to ask, I mean, I, I love to ask people what they're reading because it just, it, it's a very selfish way of, of building up my own library. So, so I use it in a very selfish way. But, you know, it's uh, it, getting, getting these ideas out there is, is also critical. Last question. What's next on your horizon? It's a new year. Um, what is going to, you looking forward to in 2023? Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so yeah, many, many things actually, but related to the possible because I'm um, I'm really invested in this and it's not just an intellectual project for me. It is 
a thing you know my my passion is to make bring these ideas to life somehow and to create positive change in the world with them I, I think that I mean that's the the end game isn't it for all of us and that's why I enjoy so much and I thank you for for this opportunity because you never know who's listening right and and the little ripples of of thought and, and ideas and energy that that go into the world so I, I thank you for that what I'm going to try to do so we have a an, an association a network possibility studies network we have a journal that is brand new and it's it's published its first issues now it's called uh, possibility studies and society and every um article now is open access so if if your listeners just type in possibility studies and society they're going to find the first um the first essays coming about and the first one is a manifesto so i i i, I wrote that manifesto i don't want to do self-publicity but if anyone's interested you can go and check that editorial and um also what i'm interested in is to create with colleagues from around the world in this Possibility Studies Network, Possibility Hubs, which are these collaborative centers of engagement in which we bring, as you said, everything is collaborative, you know, the resources of a network into a place that, that uses this to do research and practice and, and kind of interventions in the world with students and teachers and organizations and, you know, whatever they, they work on to bring these ideas to life. So the next step that I'm excited about is to make the possible uh, real. I'm not going to dichotomize here because the real and the possible are not opposites, but kind of go back to this this beautiful movement we talked about of possibility and and reality, kind of you know moving one into the other. And I think I want to get that chain going uh, with these ideas and and in this direction. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Benjamin. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I am your host, Benjamin Freud. Thank you so much for listening. And you can check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. You can check out Intrepid Ed on www.intrepidednews.com. And subscribe. Give us five stars if you like it. And certainly leave us a comment. Again, check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. And we look forward to hearing and speaking to you soon. Bye-bye.